0: You know, uh, I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear or think about the word rebel, uh, but for the past, uh, I don't know, like 60, 70 years or so, it's, it's sort of been represented by this guy right here. Uh, You know, James Dean and others that kind of followed him, they they kind of have the corner, you know, they kind of got the rebel thing down. And for whatever reason, you know, it involved leather jackets, motorcycles, and a dangling cigarette. You know, it's just like, and really what this kind of came out of was during uh, this particular time period in history, the societal norm was, hey, everybody, uh, you know, uh, be good and play nice and follow the rules, And then there was a kind of a segment of society that are kind of like, well, we don't want to do that. And so you get James Dean and others who kind of said, well, we're just going to kind of move to the beat of our own drum and we're going to kind of go against the flow of all of that. And that's really kind of what this idea of a rebel or rebellion kind of came out of. Now, what we're doing in this series together is we're walking our way through the New Testament letter to the Philippian church. We just call it Philippians and really kind of examining, well, okay, if that's what it meant to be a rebel then, what does it look like to be a rebel today? And what I'm trying to say is that nowadays, like everybody's doing that. So if everybody's kind of like, kind of going their own way, making their own path, following their heart, wherever it leads, wouldn't it sort of reason that to be a rebel means to go against the flow of the vast majority of culture. So the societal norms today is anger, and it's cancel culture and it's rage and it's impatience and it's its selfishness and so to be a rebel today wouldn't it mean that we're actually stand apart and we're gracious and we're kind and we're quick to uh, listen and slow to speak and we're patient and we're understanding and we're forgiving and we're joyful I like how Jody said it last week, if you were here. Jody said, The kind of rebellion we really need is to be deep in a shallow world, constant in a changing world, compassionate in a cynical world, unified in a divisive world, humble in a competitive world, confident in a fearful world, patient in an instant world, content in a material world, and joyful in an anxious world. And, uh, you know, I, I think we would all agree that um, it's not. And the tragic result, and I don't think we talk about this enough, is that we are profoundly sad. Like there is a sadness, I think, right now within our culture and many of us as individuals. And, you know, we talk a lot about mental health and anxiety and depression, and we should. Those are very real things. And we've talked about them from this platform a lot. But often do we just kind of stop and acknowledge that really kind of at the root of all this is, is, is that we're sad. I think that the pathway to healing for many of us over what we've been through over the last few years is to just really kind of get it out there and say, you know what, I'm, I'm sad about what we've lost over the last few years. I'm sad about what it's cost us. I'm sad that we live in a really, really broken world. I'm sad that that relationship or maybe a set of relationships that I had, I no longer have. Those people are not in my life Any longer. I'm sad that my expectations haven't been met. I'm sad that I keep repeating the same mistakes over and over again. I'm sad that I continue to search for purpose and it keeps eluding me. And I wonder if I'll ever experience it. And so I think because we're just sort of sad as a people and a culture. We um, numb out and distract ourselves with all kinds of things so that we don't have to confront our sadness and we keep chasing after happiness that eludes us. A guy by the name of Pascal said it this way, a modern life is filled with distractions to cover up the fact that we are not really happy. And as a pastor, there are a number of things that I'm always trying to you know, convince you of, but I know one of the things that I never have to convince you of is your desire to be happy. Like, we all want to be happy. Uh, our culture's number one value is happiness. It's baked into our DNA as a country, it's right there in the Declaration of Independence, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And in fact, uh, our culture will get like, you know, sort of hostile if it perceives that you're trying to infringe or block their happiness and kind of like the definition of what they think is happiness is, well, just to follow your heart or pursue all of your desires or to go after what it is that you ultimately want in order to be happy. And yet, why aren't we? Like, why do we keep chasing after this thing and we never seem to find it? And uh, it it keeps kind of escaping us. And I, I think even for many of us as christians christ followers churchgoers, call it what you want you know how long you've been in church especially if you grew up in church i think there's even this like, it's kind of like low-grade guilt over even our search for happiness and we even wonder well should i even be searching for this i remember when i was growing up in church on a number of occasions i had some very well-meaning but misguided christians say this to me like very vividly like in sunday school or wherever it was and they would say things like they would say no now now sunny now, I don't really know if they actually really did this, just in my mind. Like, this is how, I, you know, it's like, you oh, always said the crooked finger. Was ass. Sonny, God doesn't care about your happiness. He cares about your holiness. Yeah, you grew up in the same church I did, right? It's like, and so, so what we ended up doing is we sort of, like, pitted happiness and holiness against one another. And so how I kind of interpreted it was, okay, well, I guess God wants me obedient and miserable, and I want to say this to you today, especially if you got that impression, if that's been your perception. I would even imagine there's maybe a number of you here today that uh, would not call yourself um, a Christ follower. You, you're not quite sure what you believe. You believe there's probably a God, but you're not quite sure uh, who he is or what he is. And you're just kind of like, I don't know. And, and maybe that's been the reason why you've rejected it. Because you're like, oh, I'm going to be happy. And all religious people, they don't seem very happy. Because it's like between happiness and holiness, you know, happiness sounds like, you know, a lot more fun. So I think I'll do that. And I just want to say today that God is not against your happiness. In fact, um, God is the creator of life. God is your creator. You are creation. Therefore, he knows how to optimize your happiness. Like the only way in which you'll really fully experience it, I would even go as far as to say that happiness will keep escaping you until you get reunited, reconnected, restored, and redeemed to your creator. So God is not against your happiness. He actually really wants it for you. Uh, The Bible even goes as far as to say this, that God wants to give you the desires of your heart. So, but here's the thing, and I think this is what a lot of the well-meaning, misguided Christians who said that to me years ago, uh, what they really meant is God wants something more for you than just mere happiness. He wants you to go a layer deeper than that uh, to this thing called joy, because joy is much more. It's deeper and it's more durable than happiness. It's kind of like have you ever like um, held something that was just like really, really well built. You know, like have you ever? Um, uh, it just had like a really, really nice, you know, pen. And it just like, it was just like, wow, this is really nice. And then you kind of go back, you know, to like the little cheap, you know, Walmart kind of special. And you're like, man, this is really, really well designed, really, really well built. And this isn't. If You ever shut the door, uh, like you ever been to like a five-star hotel, you shut the door to the room and it's just like, whoop. You're like, man, that is really well made. That's solid. And the hardware is, like, you know, the crown molding. And then you go to like a really cheap motel and it's like, Quant, you know, it's like. <laughs> I don't know if that's really how it sounds, and but it's just like it's hollow, you know, it's just like and you're like, this is the difference between happiness and joy. Is that God wants us something really well built that's durable to withstand your circumstances, your storms, and your pain. That's what he wants. So what is the difference between happiness and holiness? If you're taking notes, by the way, I hope you uh, brought your guidebook back with you. We've got uh, some here today. If you didn't get one, these are designed for you to bring back with you every week to take notes, to use daily throughout this study and just your own kind of personal study time and to use in your groups. And so if you've got your guidebook, kind of pull it out. Some of you are avid note takers and that's great. You're my people. All right. Others of you are like I don't take notes. You know that's fine. Just maybe jot down like one thing. You know maybe it's a reference or something that you can kind of use to kind of jog your memory later. But let me give you something you can write down. All right. here's the difference between happiness and joy. All right. happiness is external. It's outside of you. All right so so uh, I'm happy when things go my way. The unexpected discount, the upgrade, or when I get all green lights on the way to work and I'm late. But here's the thing, is that I have nothing to do with any of that, so I'm kind of at the mercy of those things. So when things are good, I'm good. But when things are not good, I'm not good. And people's level of happiness is kind of like a boat on a tide. Uh, tide goes up, boat goes up. Tide goes down, boat goes down. Uh, and same thing, life is good, man, I feel good. You know, life is bad, I, I feel bad. But that is not only bad for you, that's likely bad for the people that live with you. So the problem, all those things are outside of your control. And you and I, we cannot control outcomes. We can influence them, but we cannot control them. So my happiness is sort of at the mercy of random chance. That's no way to live. So joy is not external, joy is internal. It is not based on circumstances, but it is based on a condition of the heart. So what that means is that you can experience joy even on the worst days, even in some of the toughest circumstances. Have you ever known or met two different people going through very similar circumstances, completely different responses? So somebody's, you know, walking through cancer. Somebody's walking through miscarriage. Something, somebody's walking through unemployment or divorce. And uh, one person maybe responds with, with anger and and bitterness and, and, and they're just divided. And then another person walks through a very, very similar set of circumstances and yet they're, they're joyful and they're, they're kind and they're introspective. Well, that, that is a so same set of external circumstances, different um, internal condition. I like how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 4. He goes, hey man, don't lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away Right? Yeah, every time I look in the mirror, I'm like, yeah, you're right, Paul. Yet inwardly, we are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that, here's the word, outweighs, outweighs them all. So it's this idea that joy outweighs happiness, Let me just give you a couple of other ones that are very similar, right? Happiness is based on circumstance. The um, root word uh, for happy in Latin is luck. That's just a roll of the dice. It's just kind of, you know, totally at the mercy of, of whatever happens to you. Joy is based on a condition. Happiness is by chance. It's not really up to you. It's totally random. Joy is a choice. It's a decision that you make more than a feeling that you have. And so it's a conscious decision to not let the things you can't control to control you. So that's the difference between happiness and joy. God wants our happiness, but he wants us another layer deeper than that. If you're going to really navigate the challenges of life, he wants you to operate out of a place of joy. Now, if I were to ask you today this question, um, you know, as we look out at 2023 as we see uh, what's in the news headlines and the condition of the world, the brokenness that's in the world right now, you know, uh, from everything, you know, the struggling economy, uh, the political division, you know, we got balloons from China up in the air, you know, and it's just like, um, you know, uh, with all that in front of us, what does the world need right now more than anything else? and i think that's the kind of the answer that everybody's pursuing and you might get a lot of different answers for that you know some people might say we well, you know what the world needs now more than anything else is love but you know what does that mean exactly and what the world needs now maybe you've got some like you know sort of like legalistic christians what the world needs now is truth you know we just need truth you know, what the world needs now is better morals, you know, better ethics. And I don't know that, that, that those are wrong answers. In fact, I think there's a lot of right and good in them. Here, here's what the book of Philippians would kind of say to us. What the world needs now, maybe more than ever, is for Christians to be joyful. All right. So, A, well, I was awfully quiet in here. Like, <laughs> I don't know, sonny. I, I, I don't know. Right, so, so what the world needs now more than ever is for Christians to be joyful all right so so uh, a dark and despairing world needs a joyful church oh what am i talking about why why well because when i say christians all right i'm talking i'm not talking about religion I'm not talking about somebody who, you know, just kind of has a vague belief in God or votes a certain way or has a set of morals. I'm talking about somebody who recognizes their brokenness and their sin, and they've repented of that, they've given their life to Jesus, not just as Savior as Lord, and now they're beginning to live out of that new identity in Christ. Why? Because Jesus came and met us at our worst, and he rescued and ransomed and restored and redeemed us when you and I were hopelessly broken, and he gave us a hope and a future and now, there you are, you finally showed up today, all right? Now, he's mediating on our behalf. I love that description of Jesus. Well, what is that? Well, it simply means Jesus is sort of the go-between between you and God. And God's, God, in his justness, in his rightness, is like, hey, that is a violation. They have broken the law. They're outside of me. They, they, they've, they've sinned. And Jesus says, um, yeah, but I got it. That's a mediator. He's like, okay, I got it. Like, like I've already paid for that. Like I've already covered that. He is mediating on our behalf. So when God looks at our sin, what he sees is Jesus' righteousness because we are hidden in him. And if that is not a reason to be joyful, both in our demeanor, actions, thoughts, and speech, I don't know what is. And yet, I've met a lot of grumpy Christians, especially over the past three years, haven't you? like just a lot of divisive, fearful, grumpy Christians. And there, isn't, there is perhaps no other greater barrier to the gospel message of God's grace than a grumpy Christian. They just throw a wet blanket over whatever flame of faith you're trying to get ignited. I remember whenever I was... Uh, Uh, in college, at 18 years old. I grew up in church, but I sort of like grew up pretty much like just religious. And I was either on my way of becoming either a very well-informed atheist, because of all the Sunday school I'd been in, or a Pharisee. And both of those are egregious in God's eyes. And so I, uh, I ended up like, I read the book of Romans, and Gave my life to Jesus Christ at 18. And, man, I was, like, on fire. Like, pretty much, it wasn't long after I re- gave my life to Christ that I felt called to preach. Now, you need to understand, like, I was just a shy kid. I never wanted to speak in front of people. And so, uh, man, I was just on fire. And I went to Bible college, and I was, like, so excited to share my faith. And I was looking for ways to do that. Now, this was the mid-'90s, kids. <laughs> and in the mid-'90s, there was this thing uh, called witness wear, all right? How many of you remember the witness wear? Anybody? There you are. There you are. Right. The church brats with me. And so so the witness wear like these were like T-shirts that you wore to like, you know, witness, like share your faith. And so my favorite one was one that said the Lord's gym to kind of mimic the gold's gym. And then underneath it said, bench press this. And it was Jesus bench pressing. He's doing a push up with a cross on his back. You know, and I was like, oh, that's awesome, right? That was so vintage, it needs to come back, maybe, right? So so I had like, I don't know, like five or six of these. They said different things. And I was a cashier at Sam's Club, uh, working my way through college. And so I would wear these witness wear shirts uh, to work. And I had one, uh, one day that I wore, and it simply said this, um, life is hard, God is good, let's dance and it had like these like stick figures like kind of doing like this kind of thing so you know I don't know I actually kind of think that theology that's pretty good and so I like was wearing that and I was like ringing people out and I got all kinds of different responses you know from that some people laughed you know some people were you know but I had one guy that came through and he was he was an older gentleman and he kind of stood there and he like was kind of turning his head sideways and and just looking at my t-shirt and he goes what does that mean and I was like, "Life is hard. God is good. Let's dance." And um, and th- this is honestly like what he said. He looked at me and he just kind of the scowl and he goes, "That's so irreverent." Like <laughs> got his stuff and walked out. And I was like thank you. You know, i say, thanks for dumping all over me. You know, it was just like, I was just like, wow. And I remember my very first uh, church that I went to, I was 23 years old. They hired me as their senior pastor. <laughs> That's such a joke, right? 23 <laughs> year old senior pastor. All right. So like, I go in and and uh, I remember my very, very first Sunday it was a church about like 180 people. And uh, you know, some of you grew up maybe in smaller churches like I did, and, and the, the pastor would stand at the front door after, I don't know where this came up from, Jesus didn't come up with it. And you're like standing at the front door as people are filing out and they'd be like, good game, good game, good game, good game, you know. And, and this like uh, uh, older lady, she was like 140. She, she, she walked up to me and she said, she said, I don't know why we hired you. And, uh, and then she said, I was like, well, I don't know. You know, I was like, what do you mean? And she, she goes, I don't know what in the world you can teach me. She goes, I've got underwear older than you. And, uh, <laughs> I was like, thank you for the visual. I, you know, I appreciate that. You ever met a grumpy Christian? Like, can I just ask you this? Like, like are you a grumpy Christian? See, I love what Karl Barth said about this. He goes, the theologian who labors without joy is not a theologian at all. Sulky faces, morose thoughts, and boring ways of speaking are intolerable in this field. You ever know somebody that's like, man, it's, it's gotta be like right doctrine. And I would say, yes and amen. Let's get our doctrine right. But why is it that so much of the time that we can do so in such a joyless way? It's like sort of like, well, I'm going to look down on you or I'm going to be sort of like mean-spirited about that. And, uh, you know, uh, those who are seeking to get their doctrine right should be some of the most joyful, kind people ever. A guy by the name of Frederick Nietzsche, when he was asked why he rejected Christianity, of all the things he could say, he said this, I never saw the members of my father's church enjoying themselves. And this world right now, this divided, hurting, broken, confused world that is chasing after happiness, this world needs the truth that comes through Jesus. Please don't hear me say anything different than that but this world is not pursuing truth. This world is pursuing their own truth, which is their happiness. So a church that is filled with something deeper than happiness, joy, is as important as a church filled with truth because that's what opens up the door for the world to be open to the truth. Man, who wants to come to a church that is boring? That's why so many of you left years ago. Why do you want to come to a church that is lifeless and critical and mean-spirited and sad? You can get that every other day of the week. Like we come here to be filled up and to be reminded of the joy that we have in Christ. And Philippians is the perfect book for us to study in a sad world because it is Paul's most joyful letter which is really ironic given where he wrote it. Paul did not write this from a beach in Tahiti, sipping on a little umbrella drink. Paul wrote this imprisoned in Rome. He was there against his will. He had been arrested illegally. He was waiting off for a trial in which they wanted to kill him. And he writes the happiest letter in the Bible. Paul's just built different, man. Like he just saw a different set of circumstances. He was operating out of a place of joy. And so he, you can read about his dramatic conversion in Acts chapter 9. And then a few chapters later in Acts chapter 16, roughly two millennia ago, Paul walks into a city a lot like our city. Philippi had a lot of similarities to Indianapolis. It wasn't the largest city in the region, but it was certainly pretty influential. Philippi was located along a major highway known as the Via Via Ignatia, a great trading route that connected Europe and Asia, East and West. It was kind of a gateway city. It was a melting pot of cultures and perspectives. And uh, it was very transient. They had a struggling NFL football team, lots of similarities (laughs) to our city. (laughs) There was also a lot of racial strife, there was economic oppression, there was spiritual confusion. When Paul walked into Philippi, there were zero Christians. There was no Christians throughout Europe for that matter. And so Paul comes in as the OG church planner and he plants a church. He's like, okay, there are no Christians here. We're going to plant a church. And you can read all about the starting of the church in Philippi in Acts chapter 16. Now I want to point this out just for the case of our study in that during this particular time period, there were three things that every Jewish man prayed every morning. Now I'm not saying this is right. I'm saying this is what they did. I'm not prescribing this. I'm uh, or I'm, I'm describing this. This is what the Jewish men, men would pray. They would say, God, thank you that I'm not a woman. Thank you that I'm not a slave. Thank you that I'm not a Gentile. They prayed that every day. All right, so uh, Paul plants his church. Do you know who the first three converts were in the church in Philippi? A woman named Lydia, a little slave girl, and a Philippian jailer, right? Don't tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor, right? <laughs> so this church is rebellious. This church is running against the grain of society. And that got baked into their DNA. And Paul plants a church. He moves on to plant others. They stay in touch with him. And this church would have Paul's back through thick and thin. And they hear what has happened to him in Rome. And so they send him gifts. They're like, hey, we're here to support you. And so Paul writes a letter back to them to thank them for the gifts, as well as to encourage them to pursue joy in a very hostile, very divided, very fearful culture. And this letter to the Philippians has been encouraging Christ followers ever since, and hopefully it's going to encourage us today. And that's Paul's dominant theme, joy. In in four chapters, no less than 16 times, does Paul talk about joy, rejoicing, happiness, and gladness. And this is not naive optimism. You know, this is not, you know, you know, wish your way to a better life. What Paul is doing here is he is helping us to cultivate joy. And that's how I want us to think about it. This isn't one of those things where I'm just going to wake up every day and just go, you know what, I'm just going to be joyful today. No, it's like you want to be joyful, you got to start cultivating it. But our culture chases happiness. And I would say that happiness is the drive-through window of fulfillment. It's the, I'm hungry. I don't have time to, you know, eat real food. So I'm just going to go through the drive-through, get something quick that tastes good, but probably not really good for me. Not not much nutrition. And I'm going to be hungry an hour later. That's happiness. Joy is a garden. Joy is like farm to table. Like joy is, it's going to take a little longer. But it's worth pursuing, and we need to today begin convol- cultivating joy if we want to have it tomorrow. Joy, here, you can write this down, joy has to be cultivated over time. And Paul's going to show us in this passage today how to do that by describing his own circumstances. And I just want you to know that Paul is in pain as he pens these words. Paul had relationships fall apart. Paul had had people that said, we've got your back, we'll never leave. And they they stabbed him in the back. Paul was being criticized and he was being slandered and he could have gotten bitter. He could have written from a place of real venom if he wanted to. He could have lashed out, but he doesn't. And uh, there's a lot that we can learn here. And so there's three things I wanna share with you about how to cultivate joy in your life directly from the passage. The first thing is this, Look at every problem from God's POV. POV stands for point of view. So look at every problem in your life through God's point of view. And you got to stop and you got to ask yourself, what lens am I looking at this problem? Everybody has problems. Everybody has pain. Everybody has unfortunate circumstances. That that is a part of life. What perspective am I going to choose to look at it through? Look at with me at verse 12. Paul writes this. He goes, and I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters... That, now underline these next few words, highlight them, pull them out. Everything that has happened to me here has helped to spread the good news. So uh, whenever somebody says, hey, let me tell you what happened to me in the airport. Chances are it's going to be something stressful, right? Yeah, that's usually what we say. Hey, this is what happened to me outside of my control that, called me, that caused me stress and pain. Uh, Lindsay and I were with a couple of this last week, and uh, we were having breakfast, and uh, they, they said in the, just the middle of our conversation, they said, hey, uh, uh, here's what happened to us this last year. They were on a trip to Israel, and they were in some cities. They were flying back. They said, here's what happened to us when we were in the security line, and we just knew whatever they were going to say next was going to be stress-inducing. And they said, you know, we were standing there and there was these soldiers coming through with AK-47s and they were looking people in the eye and they were sort of, you know, intimidating us, you know, in the security line. And one of the soldiers walked up to her and they looked her right in the eye, got real close to her, and they said, uh, tell me the reason for your visit. Why are you here? And it rattled her so badly that, I mean, she was so intimidated that she was like, ah, 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 ah him. And she points to her husband. Wasn't a good look, Right. And so it sort of looked like maybe she was there against her will with this guy. So they, they kind of escorted them into this back room and he's looking at her like, gosh, you know, like what? And so they go in, they, they rifle through all their luggage. They're interrogating them. Like that is something that happened to them. And Paul says, hey, let me tell you what has happened to me here. He's been imprisoned. He's waiting trial. He might be executed. And Paul says, hey, this has only helped advance the good news and so man, Paul had all kinds of things happen to him. He was beaten, he was flogged, he was shipwrecked, he got stoned, like the, the, ro- the rocks, not the joints. And he, and he was like, all these things that had kind of happened to him. And, and, and this sounds like a really, really bad day to me. Like the situation looks pretty grim. Here's what Paul is doing. He goes, hey, this has only helped advance the good news. Paul was shifting his POV. All right, so what does that look like? Well, hopefully this is a little visual that'll kind of stick with you when you face a problem later this week, all right? We have uh, seven camera angles in this room, largely because most of the people listening to this message right now are not in the room. They're outside of this room. So we have other locations. We have people joining us online from all over the world. So uh, we have camera angles to kind of capture the experience. So we have camera angle number one, all right? We have camera angle number two. We have camera angle number three. right, we have camera angle four. I think it's this, yep, this one. All right, some of you didn't even know we had that up there. Look at that. All right, we have have camera angle number five, angle six, and angle seven. Oh yeah, I was faster than the camera, right? All right, so uh, so these multiple angles. So here's what it is. Like you've got multiple angles to capture the same image. So even in your own life, like whenever you're facing an issue, a problem, and you're grumpy about it, you're fearful about it, you're angry about it, shift your POV. What is God's perspective? How do I do that? Well, look at what Paul writes in verse 13. For everyone here, including the whole palace guard, knows that I am in chains because of Christ. They all know why I'm here, and because of my imprisonment, this is so good. Most of the believers here have gained confidence and boldly speak God's message without fear. So Paul could have felt sorry for himself. He could have said, "I've lawyered up. You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, sue the, you know, Roman judicial system. You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go after. I'm gonna get mine." But instead, what he says is to say hey, most of most of the believers here know why I'm in chains, and it's actually made them more bold to speak about the message of Christ and <laughs> here's what we need to know is that, um, uh, the prisoners, Paul, Paul would have had a palace guard chained to him 24 seven. And from Paul, we would have seen that as an invasive of privacy, invasion of privacy. Paul saw it as a captive audience. <laughs> Paul's like, awesome. I got somebody that I can explain the gospel. Now this wasn't like the same palace guard chained to him 24 um, seven. Uh, historians tell us that they changed out the guards every four hours. So I ran a little math. Paul was there roughly for two years, 24 hours a day. Uh, change out of the guard every four hours. As a result, he was able to witness to 3,280 different guards. All right, that's roughly double the size of this room. Uh, chapter 4 tells us that members of Caesar's own household gave their life to Christ. That's the guy at the very top. Paul was influential even though he was in prison. Why? Because he was able to see his circumstances from God's point of view. What about you? Now you may not be in a prison cell right now. Some of you might be watching. What kind of situation are you in? And have you been kind of like running around in circles? Like I can't seem to break out of this like... Confusion and bitterness and despair. Maybe it's time to change your POV. Your circumstances depend upon it. So here's what usually happens. When we experience loss or pain, the very natural human reaction is anger. Anger over our circumstances. Then it can turn to grief. What happens next is really pivotal because um, as you process your grief, you will either produce seeds of faith or seeds of bitterness. Those are the two options. Deeper faith comes by navigating painful circumstances. And you're like, well, Aaron, that's great. How do I change my point of view? It's, from, it's, it's very simply from moving from one question to another. See, most of us, when we go through a set of circumstances that are painful, we ask the why question. You know, why did this happen? Why me? God, why didn't you intervene? And there's nothing wrong with any of those questions. We are human beings. It's where we'll start. Ask the question. Just don't get stuck there. Don't get stuck on the why. You've got to begin to move to the what. So Jesus would say, hey, in this world you're going to have trouble, but take heart, be encouraged. I have overcome the world so he said that for a reason so I either believe him or I don't and so I got to move from why to what now here's a set of questions that you might write down in your guidebook just to kind of take with you whenever you're facing kind of an impossible situation and you simply just begin to pray this God what do you want me to see what do you want me to see God God what do you want me to do God what are you trying to teach me what what, what is your plans What, what are your what is your purpose for me in all this How about this, God, what is your point of view? Because I really wanna see it. And this is why, by the way, we keep urging you to do daily Bible reading, sign up for that, it comes into your email inbox, not because God wants good little Christian boys and girls to read their Bible every day. It's because the Bible is God's POV. It is his point of view that you start your day with and you go with, because here's the thing, for the rest of your day, Uh, The point of view that you're going to get is the culture's point of view 24-7. And if you're never going to God's point of view, it will never become fluent. It will never become the automatic reaction of your life. This is what makes joy possible. If you wait for your circumstances to be perfect, you will never experience it. If you wait for people to play nice, that will never happen. And that's what Paul gets to next. The next, number two. So, so the first thing is look at it from God's POV. Number two, refocus your focus. Refocus your focus. How many of you, when you look at a picture of yourself, you focus on your best features? Anybody? It's like, no, not me. Like I think most of us, when we see a picture of ourselves, we dial in on the thing we like the least. It's like, man, my ears are so big. You know, I've got that. Where did that wrinkle come from? You know, it's like, I need to lose some weight. You know, we're just like focused on our our least favorable quality. But then have you ever done this? You ever been looking at the picture of yourself with someone else and you point out your big ears and they're like, I don't see it. Like, you look fine. Because we have a tendency to fixate on the thing we like least. And cultivating joy requires us to refocus our focus. Look what Paul writes in verse 15. He's going to to write about a very personal thing for him, but it has application for us. He says, It is true that some are preaching out of jealousy and rivalry, but others preach about Christ with pure motives. They preach because they love me, for they know I have been appointed to defend the good news. Those others do not have pure motives as they preach about Christ. They preach with selfish ambition, not sincerely intending to make my chains more painful to me. All right, so what's going on? What's Paul saying? All right, so understand that Paul was... The man, right? He was like the GOAT, the OG church planner. He's whatever. He had the blue check mark by his name. Like he was the person that everybody else kind of looked. He was the Billy Graham of his day, right? He's like that dude. And he's writing about other preachers, pastors, prophets. And, I, and he would say that these guys are like colleagues, right? They're on the same team. Now, later in the book, he's going to write about false teachers that are outside of the faith. I don't think that's this group. And like he's talking about, you know, faithful people that are trying to do God's work. Uh, they were just broken. They were selfish. They were insecure. And so what happens is they're trying to tear, they know that Paul's in prison. So they're trying to tear him down in order to build themselves up. And so he's in chains and they are spreading rumors about him. They are uh, going after him on Twitter. You know, they're doing everything they can to discredit Paul. And we've all probably. We all probably know what that feels like in whatever sphere of life that we're in. You ever had somebody just say untrue things about you? You ever said somebody like, be really critical towards you, create a narrative about you that isn't true and really what they're doing. And this is, I would say, most of the time where a lot of harsh criticism comes from is it comes from insecurity and pain, trying to tear others down to build themselves up. And you know, I mean, I've had like just untrue things said about me online and in person. A friend of mine just this last month uh, texted me, and he said, hey, man, he's like, I just feel like I need to tell you this. He's like, I was at this restaurant, and I overheard a group of guys, like, saying very untrue things, or they were saying things about you and Trader's Point, and uh, he told me what they were saying, and it was just untrue, it, it, and, it, and it hurt as I heard it, and as a imperfect human being, my response was uh, to get a little angry and to get a little defensive. And I actually started telling him, I was like, whoa, 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 He goes, hey, Aaron, I'm on your side, man. Like, he's like, you don't need to explain it to me. And and here, but here's, here was Paul's here was Paul's response. Paul's like, hey man, like it's it, it's okay. Look, look at what he says in verse 18. He goes, um, it doesn't matter huh. whether their motives are false or genuine. The message about Christ is being preached either way. So I rejoice. It's kind of like, wow, man. Like he's like, hey, as long as they're getting the gospel message right, you know, as long as they're lifting up the name of Jesus, even though they're trashing me, making me look bad in the process, I'm fine with that. You know, I can rejoice in the fact that the gospel is still being advanced, even though their motives are bad, which is why, by the way, we should be kind and gracious towards other churches, even if you don't agree with their philosophy of ministry. As long as the Bible's being preached and Jesus' name is being lifted up, I'm for them, man. All right, so, so Paul's like, hey, He's like, I don't want to be bitter about this. And if anybody had a reason to, it was him. And so when somebody speaks badly about you, gossips about you, hurts you in some way, you've got two options for the way you're going to look at it. You can either become fixated on their motives or you can become focused on God's outcomes. And Paul says, man, this is the outcome that I want. More people are coming to know Jesus. Great. It's not the way that I would have chosen, but I still rejoice. He was refocusing his focus. So here's what I want to ask you to do. Uh, Maybe this will kind of help you, kind of take uh, this away with you. Uh, Whatever room you're in right now, I want you to take the next 10 seconds, and I want you to identify anything that is the color red. All right? So 10 seconds, the color red. Go. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, Three, two, one, all right? Now, how many of you just had an anxiety attack, right? You're always like, ah, I gotta find something red, you know? I'm gonna be tested on this, all right? Relax, all right? So, so here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. How many of you saw something green? Yeah, all right, so there's something green in this room. I see several green things, all right? You didn't see it because you weren't looking for it. And the same thing is true in joy with our circumstances. You're like, I, I just, I'm not joyful. Well, are you looking for it? And by nature, we have a tendency to look for other things. And I love what Paul, or uh, I love what it says in 1 Thessalonians 5.18. It says this, be thankful whenever everything goes your way. No, it says what? It says be thankful in all circumstances, all of them. For this is God's will, that's just a fancy way of saying, this is God's desire for you, who belong to Christ Jesus. So we don't get to choose what we go through. We do get to choose what we focus on. So we refocus our focus. Here's the last thing, all right? Source your joy in something that can supply. Source your joy in something that can supply. One of my least favorite things driving down the road is when I drive past a church, that has a church sign. You know what I'm talking about? These little like, you know, kind of cheesy little sayings that are on these, this is why we don't have one, all right? And, and uh, you know, I'm not trying to judge them or anything like that. I actually did pastor a church that had one and the guy would come up to me every Sunday after church and he would go, you got any idea for what we should put on the church marquee? You know, and, uh, and I was like, I don't know, dude. Like, and so um, that wasn't in my notes, by the way. So. Um, <laughs> So uh, uh, the, I drove by this. Have you ever seen this church sign? You drive by and it says this uh, uh, No Jesus, K N O W. No joy, K N O W. No Jesus, N O Jesus. No joy, N O joy. No Jesus, no joy. No Jesus, no joy. All right. <laughs> now, I understand what they're trying to say, and it's not that there isn't a grain of truth in there, it's just that it's not fully true. And I think what it does is it kind of pushes people further away from God because um, we know lots of people that do not follow Jesus, do not acknowledge God in their life, but seem to be kind of happy and joyful, at least on the surface. Let's just get real. You probably never thought you would hear a pastor say this in church, but sin is fun. Some of you are like, amen. Sin is a lot of fun, right? It is, like there's something, I mean, we wouldn't do it if it wasn't. It le- so sin is fun until it's not. And that's been most of our experience, right? Like, yeah, it, it's great. It's, it's the cheap, you know, cheeseburger in the drive-through window, and it gives you a stomachache after. It. And you're like, i have gone, man, that really didn't satisfy. Like, like it, didn't, it, didn't, it didn't fulfill me the way that I thought that it would. You know, it's like what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, except for the itchy thing you bring home with you, right? So (laughs) it's like only sin goes so far. (laughs) That only made its way into my notes because I like to see my assistant squirm when she gets the emails, right? So so lots lots of things give us momentary happiness. Man, the approval of people feels so good until you fall out of favor. Stuff and experiences, man, it feels great until they wear out or the week comes to an end. Disney, the happiest place on earth until I get back in a home and realize I have to mortgage my house to pay for it. (laughs) Maybe you remember this quote from actor Jim Carrey who said this, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed so they can see it's not the answer. So what your joy is sourced by depends on how long it lasts. And Paul finishes the passage with this statement in verses 18 and 19. He says, I will continue to rejoice. For I know that as you pray for me and the spirit of Jesus helps me, this will lead to my deliverance. Perhaps the best summary of the entire book of Philippians could be found in verse 21. We'll likely cover it next week where Paul just says to live, for me to live is Christ. If you were Paul's adversary, he would have been maddening to deal with. It's like they get in front of Paul and they're like, "Paul, we're going to throw you in jail." Great, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll convert the guards, right? Well, Paul, we're going to torture you. Well, you know, I do not consider the sufferings of this present world worth being compared to the future glory. Well, we're going to kill you. Well, to die is gain, right? Well, we're going to let you live to live as Christ. You know, it's like. It's like, ah! you know. And so <laughs> Paul's like, man, I've got, I've got something so profound and deep and durable in Christ that it cannot be taken away. It doesn't run out, go dry, or get used up. And the way that we continue to fill that joy tank is by magnifying God over our problems. So you got a person with lots of big, big problems, chances are. They have a very small view of God. And in worship, when you come to God in spirit and truth, when you come to God just genuinely and authentically as you are, something happens divinely in that moment is that things begin to flip. And as you magnify God in worship, even if you don't feel like it, God gets bigger and your problems get smaller. I want you to understand, some of the most joyful people in the Bible had horrible things happen to them, and yet... They continued to worship God. Job, he had everything taken from him. It's like the, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Mary, the mother of Jesus, had her whole life turned upside down. She's a teenager, she's not married, she gets pregnant, nobody believes her story. She gives birth to Jesus in a barn and it says that she treasured all these things in her heart. What were they doing in those moments? They were saying, God, I'm choosing to magnify you so that you get bigger and my problems get smaller. Worship is not when we come in here and you see a bunch of happy, clappy people whose lives are just perfect praising Jesus, right? That's that's not what happens. It's It's a group of broken, sinful, hurting, confused people going, no, I acknowledge that I can't figure this out on my own, so God, I'm gonna magnify you, and my circumstances may not be praiseworthy, but my God always is. So, Let me just kind of wrap up with this. I'll never forget a trip that I took to Zambia a few years ago in Africa. And we were traveling around from village to village and we went into this village. The only way to get in was to cross over a bridge made out of car doors that were kind of wired together over a little stream of sewage. It was the only way into this village, the only way out. And I remember walking in and just like devastated by the poverty that I saw. And there was a church in the center of that village and they had sent word out that we were gonna be there. And so like four or 500 Zambian pastors just from all over the region came to this church for just a day of teaching, training, and worship. And uh, so part of my responsibility that day was to do the teaching for the pastors and just to encourage them and to give them some resources. And, And so really kind of how it worked was the pastor and his wife, their family, lived in a little shanty, concrete blocks and a tin roof right next door to the church building. And so the pastor came up to me, just had this big smile on his face, his wife was so sweet. And uh, he said, hey, here's how the day is gonna work. You're gonna do a two hour teaching session, which I had not prepared for, by the way, <laughs> and uh, to all these pastors, and then we'll take you over to our house for about 45 minutes for, to refresh you. And then you'll go back and you'll teach another two hours and then we'll do another 45 minute session back at our house to refresh and then another two hours. It was like four or five sessions total all day long. And uh, the most memorable time for me was sitting in that little shanty with the pastor and his wife uh, between sessions. And man, they were just so joyful. But I'm looking around at their circumstances. I'm looking around at the environment they lived in and I couldn't understand why. And they're living in a non-heated, non-air conditioned little, you know, I don't know, three, 400 square feet of space in this concrete cinder block house with a tin roof. And they began to like, tell me their story, they, they had just lost their 18-year-old son to malaria. I never would have known it by their demeanor. And they would feed me at every session, they would feed me a chicken leg, a hard-boiled egg, and some water. And, uh, and they didn't eat. And it was later when the missionary told me, he goes, yeah, he goes, they've been saving up for the last couple months knowing that you were coming. That was about all they had. They, they didn't eat because they didn't have it. They were giving it to you. Can I tell you I felt about that big? Because I look at my circumstances and uh, you know, when the temperature drops below 20 degrees, you know, and somebody cuts me off in traffic and something doesn't go my way. Just how quick I am to be angry, um, to be defensive, to have no joy. And it really stops to make me wonder, where does the source of that come from? And I feel like Maybe I'm sourcing it in the wrong things. Can I just ask you today, where's your joy? And I know that there's problems and I know that there's pain. And Jesus would say, um, hey, I've got something better for you. Change your point of view, refocus your focus, source your joy. See, when the rest of the world is raging, man, you be rejoicing. When the rest of the world is complaining, Man, we can be grateful. When the rest of the world is critical, we can be compassionate. When the rest of the world is tearing down, we can be building up. When the rest of the world is canceling, we can be forgiving. When the rest of the world is fixated on happiness, we can be focused on joy. When the rest of the world is scrambling for identity, we can be secure in Christ. And maybe the most rebellious thing you can do today in a culture that is moving away from God is to move towards and experience joy. So God, we come to you right now and we wanna be a joyful people in an angry world. We want to, in the best sense of the term, be a little rebellious and move against the grain of the culture that is seeking out their own happiness. We wanna seek after joy and that can only be found in you. And so God, I pray today that if there is A Christian here that has sort of lost their way. They've been focused on the wrong things. They've been watching too much news and not spending enough time in your word. I pray today that maybe we would be convicted to just change our point of view. God, I pray that if there's somebody here that walked away from church a long time ago because they had a grumpy Christian point their finger in their face and say things that pushed them away, I pray that they would recognize that that grumpy Christian is does not represent Jesus, that Jesus represents Jesus, and that they would come home. God, I pray today that those of us, that we're just running on fumes, that we would be able to fill our joy tank by what Jesus died for us to have. And we ask this in Jesus' name, and we joyfully say, amen.